Hello, this is Notes from the Back Row, a podcast like no other, different themes, rotating hosts, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the mind. Hello and welcome to Notes from the Back Row, the official podcast of backdashrow.com, champions of unsung and underrated cinema. My name is Dan Gorman. I am here with a sequel of sorts to last year's interview with Alan Levine, where we talked about their shot on video Canadian films for Emeritus Pictures. And today, Alan returns to discuss stories from behind the scenes of the 1987 low-budget picture Skull, A Night of Terror, they expand upon the story of blowing up an entire house for the finale of the film, what it was like working with fire and stunts on the low-budget set. They had a uniquely Canadian take on craft services, and they tell a really long story uh, about how one ends up stealing a truck in the name of just getting even simple shots for your, for your film. So special thanks to Alan and Sid Levine, who you'll hear at the end a little bit for taking part in this interview and helping set it up. And other than that, I will just throw straight to the interview. Here is Tales from Skull, A Night of Terror. Alan, thank you so much for your time a second time. I'm so excited to talk again because the previous time we talked, we we discussed a film called Skull, A Night of Terror from 1987. And you had said, you know, you have to see this. And I mentioned that I'd seen the cover when I was younger, and but I'd never watched it. So you had said you had a bunch of stories uh, on that podcast. You told an amazing story about blowing the house up. And so if anyone listening hasn't heard that, go, I'll, I'll put a link for that podcast. That will but... be my, my second story. I was going to get into it and give you a little bit more detail okay. about that tonight. Good, good. And it was yeah. going to be my second story. As far yeah. as I understand, I kind of zipped on by it last time. So we'll get into it a bit. Yeah, we'll get into the details. <laughs> my first story is going to be, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction about the show and yeah. the relationships, which were important. Okay. And the budget, which was really important. And um, and then I'm going to tell you uh, my my best, my, out of 35 years, my very best party production story. My okay. story of all time, and it's called The Time I Stole the Truck. <laughs> I can't and wait to hear we're it. We're going to do that in a, in, a, in a minute. Yeah. So you'd say three, two, one, go, and I will tell you a little bit about, uh, I'll give you a little bit of an introduction. Okay. About, just what the heck, where we are and when we are and why. Yeah, because so my sort of like first thought about, you know, your your work on this film was like, I know that when we talked previously, we talked about Emeritus and we talked about The Edge and the Chronicle of 1812. That was around, you know, 84 and 85. And I know that Don't Turn Out the Light comes out in 87. I think it filmed in June and July is what I saw on the Internet. 86. Okay. It films in, in it films in it preps in June and then shoots in July. Okay, and the beginning of August of 1986. Yeah, and so like you had come off like these very low budget shot on video stuff, and then you have credits on. You, you talked about Graveyard Shift on the last podcast, and so I met these guys, 
on Graveyard Shift, and okay. they were looking for an an assistant director. Yeah. And I had only been. It's funny. I could keep <laughs> you here all night, but I didn't really know what an assistant director did. Yeah. Working at Emeritus and Lionel, God bless him. Love the man, love his memory, but he was so cheap, so goddamn cheap. <laughs> that he wouldn't go to the trouble of explaining that maybe you need an assistant director department. He just had yeah. three guys, just go make the movie. Don't <laughs> bring any more crew. So everybody was their own AD without even knowing it. Yeah. Then I got some extra work still being young enough to work as an extra. And I saw what a first AD really did. And I said to myself, well, I could do that. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, and I was right. And, uh, and I did first AD, uh, uh, a bunch of low budget movies, uh, after that, but these guys, Jerry Chikoridi, who is now a very well-known, yeah. very prestigious television and film director in Canada was just getting going. And this yeah. other fellow, Robert Bergman, who I'm going to talk about, great guy, wonderful human being, they were partners and they had a house in Chinatown uh on sullivan street a rickety old place and they used that not only to live in but it was also their their film company their so-called film company anyway they had talked a bunch of american so-called investors into investing in their vampire movie in yeah. 1985 and the blue jays were in a playoff run and it was called the drive of 85 so i remember it very well <laughs> And this was in late August into September, clearly. And they needed a, a, an assistant director. So uh, so when I had my interview, I don't think there were very many other candidates to work on an ultra-low budget. But this is how I got in with them. They said, um, what style do you like to do the board? And by the board, which I did not know at that time, they were referring to the schedule board. And I, I said, in one of the pivotal moments of my life, I got a light bulb, and I said you show me how you like to do the board. And if I don't have any objections, I will do it your way. Nice. <laughs> and they brought out their old cardboard strip scheduling board. And they said, well, we do it. This is that, this is yellow is daylight. And this is an, and in the space of a couple of minutes, I said, I see what you're doing. You're organizing the script. Oh, with yeah. those little strips, I can do that. And I said, <laughs> Yes, I think this is fine. Yeah. I think your way is okay. <laughs> I think that we can do the show using your method. Not a problem. And they said, well, that's great. We like your attitude. You're hired. Amazing. And I left at that nanosecond in time. I had left Emeritus and left doing extra work and jumped into feature film. That's quick thinking. Work. That's such quick thinking. And I love that because, like, you you basically learned what it was, you know, in that span of a few minutes. And you're like, okay, I know exactly now what yeah, I need. Show me, you know, show me interior, interior night yeah. is red. I see. <laughs> yeah. And exterior day is yellow because it's the sunshine. And then you write the scenes on the screen. Yeah, I got it. I got it. <laughs> you can leave it with me. Yeah. And so boom. Yeah. I was working on a movie. And uh, anyone that's listening that didn't hear the other episode, you did also tell them a wonderful story about um, your parents and them, you know, 
um, bringing the whole crew into the house and and letting them shower there. Great and, moment, though. Great yeah, story. totally. So, what was the was your experience on graveyard shift? You know, you have this experience where you're sort of faking it until you make it. Was the rest of the shoot kind of like a real trial by fire process? Yeah, it was. I had a lot of fun. It worked. It worked out uh, uh, quite well. And they, because they were all, most of them were into doing the artistic elements. There wasn't, there, there was virtually nobody except for me working on organizational elements. When's lunch? What's lunch? Uh, where do we park? There was almost nobody else. And, you know, who's, who's going to, writing a call sheet there was not really very much in the way so i they were very happy to have me and of course i had had to learn all this crap on my own working for lionel because he didn't have anybody else either so um so they thought hey this guy actually knows how to keep us organized they all wanted to do either cinematography or art directing or directing or acting or writing, but nobody wanted to figure out where the coffee pot was going to get plugged in. Nobody wanted except for me <laughs> or where we were going to park the car. Yeah. Or, and yet it's so essential. <laughs> you would think. Yeah. Especially on a low budget or ultra low budget. Like <laughs> this is what's going to be the difference between making the day. And <laughs> yeah. So I jumped right in, and they were so we're so glad you're here. And said, "Well, geez, I'm not doing anything. I'm just telling you what how long we have to do the shot." Not... But okay, yeah, mm -hmm. sure. And also, I was a little commanding with regard to being a first AD. I was saying, "We've got to do this in yeah. order to make our day." <laughs> Nobody else in the production company really had that tone, yeah, except for me. Nice. That's um, and that turned out to be true on later shows. So anyway, when 1986 came along, I was the first phone. Go Jerry and Robert had written this script called Skull: A Night of Terror, or Don't Turn Out the Light, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. And I was the first guy to get a telephone call. So instead of having a hundred thousand dollars, this time they had two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> So if you like, I will, I will jump into it. I will give you a, the, the introduction to where yeah. we are in the skull of Night of Terror. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited because, like I said, last time we spoke, I had not seen the movie. So I watched it right, you know, pretty much as soon as possible after our last discussion, and I really enjoyed it. But today I sat down and I watched it again because I knew I want, we were going to talk and I wanted to, to watch it again. And, and, and before we even get into the production of it, like you, you, when we talked previously, you had said, you got to see this movie. It's so great. Um, and the first time I watched it, I did enjoy it, but I found watching it this second time, actually my appreciation for it deepened a little bit. The two of them were very, they were talented then and they're talented now. This is Jerry Ciccaridi and Robert Bergman. They're just, they're very studied in film and cinema. They're very good storytellers. Yeah. And we're talking about $200,000. So, uh, the first thing that I'll say from a production point of view is that this is certainly the biggest bang for the buck that I could imagine for $200,000 yeah. is that you get a lot of stuff going on in the movie. You get a couple a times, of... literally. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a car that blows up, a house that blows up, there's car fire everywhere. Up. 
honest to god yeah i that was another thing on my mind where i was like i'm gonna ask a lot of questions about like how did you light that on fire how did that blow up like (laughs) so for all the people who have not seen the movie we had got this we had got this uh this script in and we were working out of a uh somebody gave us two hundred thousand dollars they just invested (laughs) private guys. And, uh, there's a bit of a story there. There always is. And, um, and so we started off in a warehouse, uh, office space in, in Toronto for just a couple of weeks. And they, the story is that a cop turns very cynical about his career in the big city. And so he re- resolves to move to a country house Yeah, and, and, to get away from the intense, horrible pressure that he has experienced being a big city cop. And then as things happen, he tries to escape, and yet uh, bad guys appear in the middle of the most bucolic, wonderful uh, environment ever, and he yeah. must fight like crazy to defend his family. And the the house that he lives in in the middle of the bucolic countryside is symbolic of the safety uh, that he tried to to create artificially, it turns out, mm-hmm. for his wife and his two children, and and so the 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 story centers around that his partner, uh, his partner's wife, and the bad guys, the team, mm-hmm. the gang of bad guys that literally invade their environment, <laughs> their house in the middle of this beautiful place, and that is. The movie yeah and so what the first thing that we needed was a house in the middle of the countryside not too far not too close and the thing is we knew that for the for the climax we had to blow up the house yeah, this house has to be good to shoot in and then also good to blow up <laughs> so the first thing in the springtime we had to find a house the environment had to be fabulous the house had to be workable and then we had to freaking blow it up. <laughs> and that was the first, before we did anything else, that was it. So Robert found a house in this neighborhood. I'm going to tell you where it is. It's north of Whitby, Ontario, and it is a million miles from Toronto, and yet only 15 minutes from Toronto. Yeah. It's staggeringly beautiful. It is Stouffville, Ontario, spelled Stoofville, Ontario. And you go to Stouffville right off the 404, Mm-hmm. And you head east for about 15 minutes, and wherever you look, 360 degrees, been waiting all day to tell you this, rolling green countryside to the horizon. Beautiful, yeah. stunning. <laughs> Just acres and acres, as far as the, uh, the occasional farmhouse, the occasional copse of trees. Yeah. Beautiful forever in every direction. And... It turns out that the government of Canada had elected to use this, had elected to plan on using this exact spot, one of the prettiest places in the world, for the new Pickering Airport. And they were <laughs> going to flatten all of it. They were going to steamroll over all of it. Wow. Plow it under, tarmac it, develop it, destroy it. And they were going to do that, and it was going to be called the Pickering International Airport. And one of the reasons they needed it, one of the reasons, was they wanted to have supersonic transports on it. And I don't know if you remember the Concorde, but they don't have them anymore. But there was a time in the 70s where they had super fast airplanes that could go from Toronto to London, England in three hours flat. 
but they needed an extra long runway. So they were going to build it there and flatten all that countryside. But then they didn't because the people rose in righteous anger and said, are you, are you out of your freaking minds? And then also it turned out that supersonic transports were unbelievably dangerous and totally. very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. So they said, you know what? Maybe we should forget the whole thing. But before they made that decision, they chased out a bunch of people who used to live on that wonderful land. And one of them lived in the house that we identified. And it was all cleared out. It was it was scraped out. The people had gone. And it was standing there abandoned. And we went to the federal government and they said, you can have this house for your purposes. And I asked them a question because it was me that picked up the phone. Is it okay if we explode it with dynamite after we finish the movie? <laughs> if you asked that question today, not only would they say no, they would probably arrest you yeah. all at the same time. On that particular occasion, they said Okay, you can, but I said, what, really? They said, yes, you can blow it up, but you have to have the permission of the local police and the local fire department, and it has to be blowed up real good. There can't be any extra rubble there that we, the federal government, have to, <laughs> have to clear away on our own at our expense, and you have to promise that. Otherwise, we'll be mad, and we'll, we'll give you a bill. When we, I said, I promise <laughs> we'll blow the shit out of it's it. It's going to so blow up. <laughs> do not worry. I promise. Yeah. So the thing about this movie is that unlike most of the other movies that I've ever worked on, this particular movie, and including Graveyard Shift, I would say, I was, except for artistic things, I was more hands-on than any other movie I could think of between now and then and they and Robert and Jerry really thanked me they were lovely to me mm -hmm. about it they were really wonderful and very appreciative but I, I worked super hard and I filled in for all the different uh, uh, crew positions that there was absolutely no way that we could possibly afford such as location manager and assistant director department and accountant and uh, um, every other organization, you know, coordinator, every other organizational element that you could think of, that was me, which segues into the story that I'm about to tell you. Yeah. So we went out and we set up, uh, we, Robert got a tech team who was terrific. And we're out there in the middle of nowhere. Beautiful, beautiful. This place was a complete dump on the inside. And our art director, we had two art people, and they were both fabulous human beings and fantastic artisans. And one of them was named Nick White. He was the production designer. And to this day, uh, he's a very good artist, and you can go to, uh, go to his website and buy artwork and, and greeting cards that he does. Uh, the other fellow is named Craig Williams. You can look him up on the IMDb. You can look them both up on the IMDb. Craig Williams is a senior uh, prop master. Uh, in in NABET, one of the main unions for film and television productions in in uh, in Toronto, uh, and he's uh, he's he's quite senior, and he does a lot of uh, big TV series these days. Uh, so, but we were uh, good friends. We all got along. Everybody got along very very well. And I knew at that time that I I was probably never going to have quite as much fun. <laughs> on any other movie as I was about to have on on this movie, and I was quite correct. <laughs> I was very, very, very true about that. We just got along really well. 
the actors too. The actors all helped. Wonderful. Not one single union position in the entire film. Not one. No, no DGC, no Actra, no nothing. Just a bunch of guys that me and Robert and Jerry put together. We got along fantastically well. One of the first things I did when I was out, I did two things. One of the things is I walked down the walked down the country lane to the next farm over and I met a fabulous British family who agreed to do our lunches for oh. us. And when we had lunch, we could go one quarter of a mile away, sit on their enormous lawn, and this wonderful lady with her son and her husband would provide lunch for 25 people every wow. day. And we sat on the lawn and we had a picnic every goddamn day. And then a little nap in the sunshine underneath <laughs> the tree. And then when we were done, we would walk back the entire 500 feet, 600 yeah. feet back to the set. And then we were there and then we would go back to work. And she did something different every day. And it was absolutely and did it for a song. Wow. That's a that, wonderful experience. That is one of the most Canadian filmmaking stories outside of the story of your mother with the house and get letting you shower at the house and stuff that's just like such a canadian thing like we got the neighbors to do the, <laughs> the food that's just and such a wonderful good. story <laughs> oh i love that and it was good the next thing i did was i called up bell canada this is a blast from the past at that point bell canada never hired out to do anything they had their own dudes and they wear their own their own little uniforms <laughs> and there were fixed prices for whatever you wanted. No cell phones. And I said, Global Canada, I require for approximately two months, two telephones. didn't use the word landline because there was no other choice. <laughs> it was landline or nothing. And I need them in the middle of a burned out house in the middle of a empty field miles from the nearest town. And I need two phones. I want you to set me up. And they said, well, okay. And they <laughs> sent a team of two trucks that laid cable along the lane and up and they and attached it to poles and with their little hammers and nails and everything. Took two days, phones into our abandoned farmhouse, $125. I was going to say, was that expensive? It sounds like, like, cause just knowing like that kind of Ontario, like 125 bucks grand total. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. <laughs> then Nick White, who I mentioned to you said, well, what we're going to do, what we have to do is we've got to make this burned out house look like people are living in it. And he set upon, and it took three weeks, four weeks and everybody helped and they turned it into, they brought in furniture and they had, cardboard up didn't have to last very long just had to look real for a short period of time so when you look at the you saw the movie yeah. when you look around inside that house it's all bullshit if you if you just glare at those walls they'll come down they're made out of cardboard if wow you just it, it, it it really works too because like the the location and the set set dressing because you know, it is it is a movie about a guy who wants to make this house, you know, idyllic. But at the same time, you know, whether it's like a sabotaging thing or what, but like the, the, there's some lines, the dialogue about like how long they've been there and how he's kind of failed to make 
you know, any progress on the house. And it really looks that way. It looks like they've been living there for a year or something. And he's been like sort of working on it, but not really. So like really. The part that establishes that was real. Yeah. We just left it how we found it. (laughs) And it looks like we set decked it, but we did not. And then we could say, look at how you have not. Yeah, improved this part of the house. That was actually the house. <laughs> exactly. The yeah. good stuff was all crap that Nick White <laughs> and Craig Williams threw together over the space of about three weeks, and for very little money. Um, so that was our headquarters. That was the main set. That was where we had lunch, and and that was and that was where the main character lives. Now I will tell you the big story. Do you remember, since you have seen the movie twice, do you remember the two good guys? The bad guys have kidnapped or something or taken the, or, or are now occupying that house. Yeah. And they have the, and there was a chase. Yeah. They get like stuck in a big cube van kind of thing at one they point. They are in the cube van. And do you remember there's a shtick where. They're stuck in the mud. The one tire is in the mud. Do you remember that? Absolutely, yeah. I want you to think about it for just I want to think about that. They're trying to drive, and it's kind of rocking, and the wheels are spinning, and it's after they've, um, yeah. Goddamn shot. (laughs) I would like your listeners, if you haven't seen the movie, to please see the movie and think about that one shot. It's not even a particularly big shot. It's just, and Paul Saunders, the sidekick, says, we are in a world of shit. And that's the shot. That's it. The bad guys are out there and the tire is spinning and they're stuck. And that's the shot. That's it. And now I will tell you the story, the time I stole the truck. So Robert and the entire crew, there's a couple of grips, a couple of gaffers. And there was a wonderful girl who was sort of a second AD to me. She was a law student that plays later. And my good friend, uh, uh, Craig Williams and Nick White and everybody, we were all shooting a different part of the chase scene in a different section of the countryside. And I was there at, in the morning and the plan was come about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, we would finish up at that bit and move the entire film unit over to a place that Robert had found that I had not seen uh, to do the stick, the stick that we were just talking about, where the, the 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 tire was spinning in the mud, and we had a couple of PAs who had shovels, and their job was to dig a little hole to put for for to for the tire to yeah. spin in. And what Robert decided was we were going to need a little water, and he says to me, Alan, could you get a water truck to come and spritz? the muddy area so it'll be muddy and that and then we'll shoot the scene that we were talking about i said okay no problem i called up the water truck company from toronto and i i said could you come out here in the middle of nowhere with your water truck and and they said yeah it'll be two hundred (laughs) dollars i said well it's a lot but okay it's worth it it's a big deal for us we really need two hundred dollars it's a deal no problem so i gave them the coordinates not even having been there not even not a problem when you get there, we'll put up the appropriate amount of water. It'll be fine. So I'm there at the initial location where the other part of the, the, uh, the, the, the chase scene was with the bad guys and everybody else. And I said to Robert Bergman, you know, I'm going to leave you. It, things are going really good. 
It's all organized. I haven't been to the second location. I want to make sure that the hole is dug properly. Also, I want to meet the water truck and tell them, put some water there. And three o'clock, four o'clock, I will meet you there and uh, bring me a little bit of a, bring me a sandwich and uh, we'll call it a deal and I will see you there. But I want to make sure it's kind of ready for us and that there's parking properly and all the rest of that. So Robert said, thank you. That's awesome, Alan. Off you go. And I got into my car and I took a lovely ride off into the countryside. I had my coordinates and I showed up, everything beautiful, and I headed down a country lane. And down the country lane I go, and as I go, fairly slowly, on my left, everyone remember all of these details, they're <laughs> important. On my left is a golf club. Well, it's Sunday. There's, it's morning. It's not very busy. It's very unbusy. There's not very many people there at all. I'm driving by very slowly. I notice very briefly in the parking lot, they seem to be doing a little bit of construction on a green that's located adjacent to the parking lot. I only look for a second. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a couple of little old-fashioned tractors. They're kind of beat up. But they're sitting right there because it's Sunday. Nobody's working. And there's places. And I only look for just a second. And I keep on driving. Got now I'm past the the the, uh, the country club, and the the lovely little uh, uh, road goes a little further. And now now it opens up, and there are trees where there were not trees before. And there's like kind of a parking area, and and it's a good staging area. You could park a unit, maybe something there, but that's not the location. The road itself keeps going straight through the copse of trees and it opens back up. And as the road continues, this is very important, on either side of the road, quite narrow, just big enough for one, one car, there's a cow pasture on either side. And in the cow pasture, there's a few cows. They are very happy cows, minding their own business. And you drive along and the road, another important thing, is approximately one to two to two and a half feet higher than the cow pasture. It's a slightly elevated road, not very much, two feet. And so the slightly elevated road continues across the cow pasture for maybe 200 feet, call it 300 feet. And on the far side, another grove of trees, very nice. The trees part and you keep on going in a straight line, very nice grove of trees, go through it. And past there is the location. Finally, <laughs> it opens up and there's a little rocky, bit in a view. And if you remember the shot, we look around, we can see it's a nice angle. The two PAs had dug up half an acre of dirt, completely horribly inappropriate and totally <laughs> useless. And they had screwed it up because we could never shoot there. So I said, stop, stop. We just need a little spot for the, <laughs> okay, sorry. Everybody relax. Yeah. <laughs> Take five. I'm going to go back and meet the water truck. Turn around, get in the car, go back through the grove of trees and cross the narrow, narrow road over the cow pasture and back to the parking staging area. And right on time is the water truck. The water <laughs> truck is positively enormous. It yeah. looks like a very small battle star. <laughs> it looks like a small aircraft carrier. But there it is. And I went, wow, that's a very 
big water truck. But anyway, we need to get it. Where we're going, sir, is on the far side of this cow pasture. Through the copse of trees on the other side is where you need to go with your enormous truck. <laughs> and we will use your water when we get there. And he said, okay. And back he got, and he <laughs> headed off towards and, and began to cross the cow pasture. Regrettably, either the track of the road crossing the cow pasture was a little bit too narrow, or he was a bit of a dummy, yeah. or maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> but about two-thirds of the way across, his right front wheel went off the road mm -hmm. and into the cow pasture by only a foot, because it's yeah, only a foot yeah. tall, but it was an enormous truck, and now it was on a tilt, and it was stuck. So the job is to try and get back that one wheel up out of the cow pasture and back onto the road and try he did, but he failed. Nothing could be done and the wheel spun and I had a problem. And so he came out and I said, well, what are we going to do? And he said, I don't know. He said, well, what? He said, the problem is the truck's too heavy. It can't get back up onto the road. How about if we, empty some of the water. How much of this water do you need? I said, I don't think we need. Let me have a look and see how much water you have. Inside the water truck, sunlight streamed in after I opened the door like a submarine, like dust boat, and opened it up <laughs> from the side. And I stuck my head in, obviously from the top. And inside I could see that the water truck was a little bit smaller than an Olympic swimming pool. <laughs> there was enough water inside the truck to float the Queen Mary. <laughs> and I stuck my head and I said, yes, by all means, please empty some of this water. We don't need it all. And he said, okay, I have this big hose here. Let's empty a bunch of it and then the truck will weigh less. And so he did. He stuck it and the hose was that wide and, and out came, there was a pump there and out came the water gushed. My goodness, the water just a Niagara, if you will. Mm -hmm. And out it came into the cow pasture. Yeah, I was thinking. There. Lots and lots and lots and lots of water into the cow pasture. Huge amounts. <laughs> and so when two-thirds of the water was emptied into the cow pasture, he said, should we give it a try? I said, yes, please, God. It's been two hours now. Please, let's see if we can drive out. And in he got. He put his feet on the accelerator and not only did he not get out, <laughs> but the entire road and all the surrounding area was now mud. Yeah. <laughs> Thick, heavy, very wet mud. And instead of having one tire in the mud, now half of the entire truck began to tilt into the cow pasture like a grounded alien saucer. There it was, 45 degrees. It looked like it was this thing tilted over. And, and putting your foot on the accelerator, what it did was it made it go deeper into the mud. He <laughs> said, what we need now is a tow truck. Now the clock is ticking. In a panicky way, 
Oh, he uses his radio to call for a tow truck because he has a fancy shortwave radio because cell phones have not been exist, have not existed. He said, you know, it's going to cost a lot of money. I said, I will pay whatever. <laughs> call them. 45 minutes later, the largest tow truck I have ever seen in my entire life shows up. <laughs> and the guy, now there's two of them, two hosers. And they talk to each other. He said, yep, oh boy, that doesn't look good, does it? And this is an enormous tow truck. And he takes out a cable about that thick and he attaches it to the water truck. And after about 15 minutes of getting it set up, he gives it a try and I hold my breath and nothing happens. And nothing, everything is stuck. And the wheels of the tow truck of this gigantic, huge, massive, six tire tow truck begin to spin on the dry ground in that lovely dry parking area under the trees. Now they're huge. What can we do to keep the tires from spinning? Now it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Robert and the film crew are due in about an hour. The tires are spinning on the tow truck. The water truck is sinking further into the swamp that it created. The sun is starting to go down. Uh-oh. <laughs> I've got in the back of these, he says, I've got in the back of my gigantic tow truck these gigantic chocks. I don't use them very often, but I will put them in, in front of the gigantic tires, and maybe that will keep them from spinning. Fine. <laughs> Anything. He jams it. The chocks are like... Two feet by three feet. It takes two guys to move a yeah. chalk. He shoves it underneath the, the, the tires, the giant tires, and maybe that will help. So we get in, hold our breath, turns on the thing, the winch or whatever, and the tires stay still. But the truck will not move, and the thick cable is now becoming shorter because of the winch. So the winch pulls the entire back of the gigantic tow truck up into oh the air. God. And now all of the entire giant tow truck is 20 <laughs> feet up. Oh, my God. And the fellow is at the top. I guess it's the cab. I've got it backwards. Because yeah. he's looking down from the cab at me with an elbow out the window saying, I don't think it's working. <laughs> he's 20 feet up. I guess it's not working. Oh I got to release the winch so I can come back down. Yes, whatever. Come back down. Thank you. <laughs> now it's 3.30. Sir, Mr. Tow Truck Driver, what can we do to possibly resolve this? He said, I can't think of anything because the problem is the front of the tow truck would have to be held down by an, an enormous weight in order for it not to go back up in the air. It would have to be attached to, to a wall or, or another truck. <laughs> It's Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. We are 10 miles from God. And the solution is getting another truck like freaking magic. And the film crew's on the way. Yeah, time's ticking. The freaking country club. Yeah. I drive back to the country club telling myself what I'm going to do is phone for another truck to someone, someone who has a truck. I know no one who has a truck. I get to the country <laughs> club, no one is there. 
The doors are shut. It's Sunday night. It is five o'clock on Sunday night. It is deserted. There's nothing there but tumbleweeds. I look around. What am I going to do? And there in front of me are the trucks they use on the green for construction. And very oddly, these trucks are very old. They're not from the 1960s. They're from the mm. 1950s. They have these enormous okay. shifts, and they, they look they look like mash. They're all sort of gefucked in that with a, a canvas roof. That And I had heard somebody once told me that sometimes construction workers just leave their keys in the truck instead <laughs> of taking it home with them because who the hell would want to steal a piece of crap 35-year-old, 45-year-old truck that you would use for renovating a no one might come to the you're golf crossing your fingers up. like <laughs> and i open up the door there are smooches of dust and spider webs everywhere <laughs> hanging down and there over what is left of the windshield are the keys for this truck and i had just learned the week before how to drive standard oh, thankfully so i take the keys push in the clutch Start the car, leave my car, and now I have started, there was gas, I have now started somebody else's truck, and I am now driving off the green in first gear because I don't know how to shift into second gear. So now I am leaving the golf and going down the lane of the golf course in first gear in a truck that I have just stolen, and I'm thinking... I better take off my glasses and put on a hat because that way, if anybody sees me, they'll say the guy who stole the truck had a hat and no glasses. Not like Mr. Levine, <laughs> yeah. who usually does not wear a glass, yeah. wear a hat and has glasses. So it obviously must be somebody else. A great some plan. Tourists went by at that moment in time, and I kind of. <laughs> and I drove and I headed back to the location at four and a half miles an hour, which took me about five minutes. And I, and as I was getting close, I saw that the entire unit, Robert Bergman and everyone had shown up ahead of me and they were there. And you'll remember the picture vehicle that we're talking about. My buddy, my close friend, Craig Williams, one of his various responsibilities was to move it from point A to point B. And he was there with the picture vehicle, the van, the chase van, in my way, leaning out of the window, smoking a cigarette and saying, my nickname, Booski. He said, hey, Booski, <laughs> what's going on? What are you doing? <laughs> and Robert Bergman, the producer-director, said, Alan, what are, you, what are you doing with this truck? And I said to everyone, get out of the way. We're in a terrible hurry because not only did I want to put it to work, but also I wanted to return it before anybody figured out that I had stolen it. <laughs> so now the entire crew spreads out of my way like, like Moses in the Red Sea. They all stand out of my way as I stampede forward at four miles per hour towards the back of the giant tow truck. And I says to the guy, is this truck good enough? And he said, I don't know, maybe. I said, can we just try it? And now everyone is standing around. I have an audience of 30 <laughs> as he takes big chains, attaches the truck I've stolen and his, his tow truck together with these giant chains. And now I hold my breath and 
the mighty winch begins. It goes super tight. The chocks kick in so that the tires cannot spin. The front of the tow truck wants to go up, but this time it can't because it's, it's connected by mighty chains to the truck that I stole. So instead, the stupid water truck rises out of the swamp like a giant leviathan of biblical <laughs> times, making a sound that went, <laughs> and it rose, and it came up onto the freaking stupid road, and it finally came down the road with the giant winch, the giant cable, and it finally came off into the parking area. And I went, oh, God. And the law student who I mentioned a half an hour ago came up to me and said, Alan, did you really steal this truck? I said, it doesn't matter. It's not yeah. important. Never mind. <laughs> get back. <laughs> I got to get back. So I said to Robert, just cross over and just take the picture vehicle and just shoot. And I will meet you there as soon as I can. Just go do it. Then I said to the water truck guy and the, and the tow truck guy, here's your money. Take your money. Take your <laughs> Okay. Goodbye. And they got back in because of course, in my mind, the less time I had stolen the truck, the better it would be. And so I headed back to the golf course at four miles an hour again, where my car was parked and I could not get the truck back up onto the green. I couldn't make it go. And I said, the hell with it. And I left the stupid truck 50 <laughs> feet from where I picked it up. So that on Monday morning, that guy's going to come back and say, yeah, when I left it on the green and now it's over here. <laughs> Who moved this? So yeah. <laughs> Got back in my car exhaling all the way, drove across that stupid road, showed up at the spot that you saw the scene took place in. And Robert Bergman said, what we need is this bucket of water this big, halfway filled, and we'll sploosh it around the tire <laughs> itself, and we will be ready to shoot. <laughs> and I stood there and I said, good, let's shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> and as the sun was going down, we grabbed the shot, where the two of them said, oh, yeah. they're getting away. We're in a yeah. world of shit. Oh, dear. <laughs> and that was a wrap on the day. Uh, that's well, got to be one of the all-time, like, just, like, spiraling situations on a, on a low-budget film set. Like, <laughs> and to that day, you know, if you're out there, if anyone's listening to this podcast and you happen to be, an elderly gentleman at this point in time, and you were wondering about the time that you were working on that golf course in 1986 and somebody moved your truck. That was me. Yeah. I hope I did not hurt it. Yeah. And all, all of that for a fairly quick scene of just, yeah, a truck. Like what we on needed a little, was a yeah. bucket. We didn't need yeah. a water truck. We needed a bucket <laughs> and, and a, a gallon of water. Oh my God. Amazing. What a story. And like, if this is what happened, you know, do, trying to get one of these very simple shots, you know, there's shots in this movie, like I mentioned earlier, th there is a car in this movie that gets, you know, they, they strap some dynamite to it and they blow it up, um, you know, and, and so hearing about how you blew the house up, I'm watching this movie for the second time and I'm going, did they just strap dynamite to this car and blow that car up? You know, like what was, yes. yeah, is that what happened? Yeah. And it was done safely. It was done safely. We had a, we had a special effects supervisor, a pyro supervisor named Ron Craig. He's still, he's still around. 
and uh, and a wonderful person, fabulous person uh, as well. And he was uh, ex Canadian Forces, mm. and um, and uh, super safe. And he taught me a great deal about safety. It was always safety first, always, always. He, he really did teach me uh, triple checking, yeah, safety. And it was the uh, and I uh, and I really paid attention. And I never forgot the the, the lessons that he, about handling guns, no matter. What the gun, it doesn't matter whether it's a model or a toy or anything else, just you just treat it so reverentially, yeah. just in case something happens that you couldn't possibly mm-hmm. predict. You just teach yourself to behave. So, all of our oddly, all of our pyrotechnics, all of the guns going off were all actually done in a very super safe uh, manner. Um, and, uh, and that goes, uh, and that goes double for, um, for the, um, the giant house blowing up at the end. Yeah. So just before this house blows up, there is also a fight in the kitchen where, you know, there's like gasoline spraying everywhere. There's mm-hmm. curtains being lit on fire. Like that's also like, I mean, for, for as safe as, as you're making it sound like the, the end result is still a very effectively suspenseful scene. Like that whole scene, you're kind of like on the edge of your seat. Like this is real fire. There's some, well, that's some, true. There's some burn effects of like the full body, half body burn or something. And yeah, I mean, it's really effective. <laughs> that was very, um, that was very carefully planned, super carefully planned. And it was fascinating to me because I, I didn't know, I didn't have my own expertise of, of any description about about pyro and how to work it, but uh, but uh, Mr. Craig had a, a a team, and they were great. They were brilliant. So all of those things were done. Not only were they planned out very carefully, but there was many safety devices were brought in on the day. For example, uh, flame bars where the fire wasn't really going to go look terrific, but was, the fire wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, the, uh, the, the people who did catch on fire had one of those classic uh, uh, flame proof suits. Yeah. Uh, absolutely top of the line. Quite mm-hmm. one of the most expensive things that we had was the uh, fantastic flame and, and a proper stuntman. Yeah. Really experienced, very experienced stunt people. Um, so there was a lot of, for that scene, which took uh, about a day and a half to shoot that scene. Um, cause we went very slowly, didn't, didn't hurry a single thing shooting all nights, starting at, uh, prepping at, uh, five o'clock in the afternoon and shooting until the sun came up. Uh, so very, very careful. One thing at one gag at a time, very well choreographed. Um, uh, you know, impoverished though we were, and that was all scheduled to happen, but just before we actually did blow up the house. So what that meant was as we damaged the set decoration, that was okay. We didn't have to fix the set decoration. We could go with continuity. We would, we could just um, leave it a little bit burnt and a little bit screwed up. That really wasn't the big problem. So that really worked out very well. So the blowing up of the house, I, you know, you have to just assume is the absolute last stuff that you do is blow the house up. And then we we got a couple of shots after we blew up the house. Yeah. In the the morning. (laughs) So I'll make this one much quicker than, than the time I stole the truck 
it, planning on on uh, he had a team. Ron Craig had a team of five people come in at 11 a.m. the day before the shot. The shot was planned for 5 a.m. the following day. So at 11 a.m. on day one, they started working on it. And what they did was they had an enormous amount. First of all, all the crew was shoot out. We were all shooting stuff far away from the house. So the house was off limits as well it should be. And so just the tech guys, the, 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 uh, the pyro guys were in there. And what they did was they had an enormous amount of sticks of dynamite and also barrels, metal barrels, with bags of gasoline, uh, <laughs> plastic bags of gasoline. And what they did with a combination of sandbags and, and whatever is they, they choreographed the, the, the metal barrels with gasoline and dynamite in them to be facing windows, and they were okay. angled them as though they were cannons. And so the wiring of setting off the, 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 the dynamite, which would set off the gasoline, which would fire out of the cannons and go out of the windows, um, was uh, all planned out. And he had a cadence where we would go boom, 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 kaboom, or something yeah. like that. And he had reviewed that with Robert Bergman, so Robert was happy with it. And then they proceeded to wire it so that it would do that. The wiring took from 11 a.m. through to 5 a.m. the next day with about five guys working on it all the way through the night. One of the few people that ever got to see their work was me because I brought them coffee and sandwiches at about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I brought them some food to eat, and I got to see what in their work lights. I got to see the intricate wiring all the way through the house. Yeah. So then they brought the wiring out of the house and into the giant field, the giant field that surrounded uh, the the house, and they created a bunker with a plastic with a plexiglass uh, lid so that they could see, and they were inside that, and we placed five cameras. Yeah, and far away on the concession lines, all the way around the house was the was the local fire department and the local police department. They were all there, plus tourists, <laughs> about a quarter of a mile away in each direction, quite far away. And then we, at about four thirty in the morning, we began to actually set up the shot and and we reviewed it. My job as a faux first AD was to call it. And we had agreed that it would be me with my giant voice, as opposed to Robert Bergman. He would stand beside me, but I would yell out the commands because I had the loudest voice. And Ron Craig said, when you want me to do it, say the word explosion and mm -hmm. nothing else. Don't say go. <laughs> don't say do it. Don't say roll. Don't say anything else. Only the word explosion. Okay, I got that. Then I gathered around the camera guys. We had brought in three extra camera guys that day so we could have five cameras going. Film. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. And I said to them, they had sometimes, they, some of these camera operators were kind of cool like this. Yeah. <laughs> and what that meant was that when I asked for, as you may know, when you, when you turn on a film camera, it takes one to two seconds, 1,000, 2,000, for speed. the film canisters to start rolling through the magazine properly. And so the camera operator usually traditionally yells out the term speed, 
which means my camera is up to speed. It will sync with the sound device. And he says that before the director says action. And But some of these guys were a little bit too cool for school and had not been yelling out speed. They wanted me to assume that since they weren't <laughs> complaining about anything that the camera was working fine and just call action Alan. That's, that's so wild. <laughs> so I said, guys, I know you sometimes don't like to call out speed, but on this one particular occasion, if you don't call out speed, when I t yell your camera and you don't yell speed back to me at the top of your voice, I will kill you with yeah. a ninja knife horribly <laughs> and in slow motion. Yeah. Because <laughs> this is an important shot. Because <laughs> it's an important shot. Yeah. For the rest of our lives, we're not going to get this shot again. Yeah. Strangely enough, they were all five of them were on side. Yeah. So we gathered, and they were all over. If you look at the shot, you'll see that there's lots of five different angles. Yeah, because yeah. there, you know, the, there's some closer shots, and then there is a couple. There's one that you pull back very far, and you really see, you know, like it, I mean, it's an amazing explosion the whole way through. But there's one shot that seems to be the furthest away, and you're like, "That's Robert Bergman, I believe. That is yeah. Robert Bergman on that camera." Because some of the other cameras too are were were they all kind of like with zoom lenses or something because some yeah, of those there was okay. a, a plethora of the yeah. zoom lenses some of them seem close so i was wondering in my head like was this a situation where when they got up to speed it was like i'm gonna get further back now that it's going or <laughs> yeah no it was about getting different angles and, yeah. and using the zoom to concentrate on a specific element that robert knew that he was gonna want so when the time came you know, I said, everybody ready, and I spoke yeah. at the top of my lungs, and uh, and uh, you know they were all, and I could see far in the distance. I could see the fire trucks way far away in the in the tourists, and I said at the top of my lungs, "Camera one, speed." Yeah, really far <laughs> in the distance. Speed, <laughs> and uh, and. Um, Camera five speed, and I went three, two, one, explosion. And I'm telling you, it was like the hand of God reaching down from heaven. It was the earth shook a lot, and the pillar of smoke was positively jarring. It must it's have, God forbid, huge. it must have been like being in a real war. I'm sorry, go ahead. I just said it's huge, like, um, you know, it, it you see, and, and it's really fascinating to hear about those. Um, canisters because when I watched it um, and I rewound it a couple times today because it's an amazing explosion <laughs> but those windows you know they the the flames you know like fireballs shoot out of those windows so it's really interesting to hear that that was like because in my head I'm just yeah in my head I'm like okay you just put you filled the house with explosions but like it's so well choreographed that all these it's windows blow out you know, and then up it comes up when you cut back to that really far long shot. You really see how high the smoke is is going. Unbelievable! And it's uh, it's impressive. When the ash started to come down. They were floating in in there were pieces of ash as big as my palm by the thousands. And for a short period of time, I was worried that they might set fire to the field, for God's sake. That's, they, I also wondered that. Like, was there any, you know, <laughs> other there, fires? 
There would, when they landed, thank goodness, they simply did not catch fire on the dry grass at all, but they looked as though they might. But this went on, we shot and shot and shot. And, and uh, when the reels were finally done, Robert Bergman said, now we got to move in and keep doing, there's a, a shtick where uh, Robert Biteman, the hero, uh, is escaping. Yeah. And so we grabbed that shot after the initial explosion. Okay. We got that right away. And then we got as much as we could of the family running away and that kind of thing. And then the sun was coming up very quickly and it was getting far, far brighter. So the continuity was going away very quickly. And when it finally did, we got the walking down the road, last shot of the movie scene. Yeah, because yeah. I was going to ask because there is a, a, like some really amazing shots of just like the rubble and like the half walls of, you know, this exploded house. And it's, you know, so cool that you were able to shoot this movie in this house, blow it up and then use the, you know, <laughs> use the rubble in the final shots of the movie. I don't think there was a uh, we included it in the edit in the cut. But when we approached the crater. Yeah. After things had calmed down, this takes us up to about 7.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock, 7.30, bright sunshine. And you go up to the crater and you look down. The only thing that is left of the entire house is a porcelain bathtub sitting there <laughs> at the bottom of the crater by itself. Wow. Smooth rubble <laughs> going up in a bowl on every side and the bathtub sitting there undamaged. <laughs> Right in the middle. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and we were hungry. We were very hungry. And it was the one time that I had made no provision for coffee mm. or, or anything. I think we went over to our British friends and woke them up. And yeah, we, <laughs> we just blew a house up. We need some coffee. <laughs> we were really hungry, too. Yeah. Well, nobody had eaten since the day before. They'd been up for 30 hours and nobody yeah. had eaten anything. And, and nobody <laughs> had wanted to, getting ready for this. Nobody mm -hmm. was thinking about food or anything else. And, and we had finished the movie. It was the last shot of the movie. And now it's 8 o'clock in the morning. And I said, you know yeah. what? I'm freaking starving. And a Java wouldn't be bad either. Mm-hmm. Just another very Canadian thing. Like, even though they're not on call that day to make food, they're like, okay, absolutely. What do you want? <laughs> you know, they're so sweet. Yeah. Lovely, lovely people. And the, the cops came up to me and said, yeah, it went fairly well. <laughs> Fireman said, you know, we're going home now. Do yeah. you need us for anything else? It's, no, we do not. <laughs> wow. Um, and then, you know, we had to start cleaning stuff up. And we, what we really wanted to do was eat and sleep. But, but it was, uh, we had left quite a mess. But You had to make sure, right, for the uh, government. The federal government later on sent a bulldozer and did not charge us to just oh. fill in the hole. So That's they nice. just, the bulldozer just filled in the, because after all, there was nothing for them to have to take away. Yeah. So they filled in the hole for free. Mm -hmm. and uh, And that was... And that was that movie. That's it's amazing, and you know, like I said, I really enjoy the movie. I think it's really good. You mentioned, like, have have you seen it since we last talked? I have not. Okay, I would. I'm. I think that the next thing that I would like to do is is have a situation where I watch it with Sid Levine. Yeah, so yeah. We have it thanks to you. We have a digital copy amazing. of it. No, I have not seen it in about twenty years. Yeah. And so the only other question that I have about the movie in general is, and I don't know if you were privy to any of this, but what struck me on this viewing was there's a lot of interesting stuff in this movie about like 
the main character is this guy who, you know, is cheating on his wife. He's kind of a bad husband, but he's, tr- he's like sort of half-heartedly trying to be, you know, the guy who's going to fix the house. And like you said, the, the idyllic kind of countryside. And then you have Skull, who is this guy from jail who comes in and he's a ter- terrorizing them. But throughout the movie, he's saying like, I'm the man of the house now and all this stuff. And so there's the, there's this like very kind of like weird sort of machismo, like tete a tete of like this guy, And I just was wondering, like, when you were starting your work on this was, you know, were you privy to any of like what what the kind of, you know, um, you know, point of the movie was or like what they were trying to get at? You zeroed in on it very well. If you don't mind my saying, you've really nailed it. And it is all based on uh, on a Greek myth. Um, who's uh, the specific one eludes me at this moment in time, and Jerry Chikorini is going to be oh, really it's mad. Not, is it not is it the, the Odyssey? Odyssey? Yeah, it might be the Odyssey. I think it's the Odyssey. It might be the Odyssey because I had read on the IMDb trivia that 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 like the township has a name from the Odyssey, and there's the one-eyed guy, and oh yeah, the it's, guy. The Odyssey. it's the yeah. Odyssey. It's yeah. the it's the freaking Odyssey. Yeah, and. Uh, and uh, you know, so obviously the other woman is a siren. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. And uh, and uh, so the bad guy. A, a quick word about the bad guy is a good. He's a friend of mine. I don't see him as often as I want. His name is Robbie Rocks. R O X. Please Google him. He's a very well known Toronto rock and roller for many decades. Uh, it has a had the Monster Horn Band for many many years. A famous guy. Uh, the hero, the the sidekick who gets killed, is a close personal friend of mine, uh, uh, Paul Saunders. Um, he's uh, still very busy. He's got a rock and roll show of his own, uh, Paulie and the Greaseballs, and um, he does very well with that. Uh, and he's a great guy. Uh, Robert Biderman, fine actor, great guy. You can look him up. Um, it, we all got along very, very well. We had uh, some great relationships, but you've zeroed in on the Greek mythological okay. elements. He, he yeah. comes back. He comes back home, and he's got to fight for his uh, his domain and, and his woman. Yeah, and, uh, it's it's just it's nice because like you know not not to say that like all low budget movies are you know all low budget exploitation movies don't have anything on the mind or anything because there's lots of them that do. But it just it is an interesting layer of like clearly this is not a movie that was just made because like i just want to make a action picture and i just want to make a you know a buck or whatever there's like interesting stuff going on and that goes into like the camera work is all really interesting like i would love to see this restored because in the in the full frame dvd you can even tell there's lots of like energetic camera work and cinematography and it's just it's it's interesting yeah I like so, it. <laughs> a restored version would be fantastic. I felt, but on that topic, I did feel that the lighting was really very good. I felt the lighting was terrific. I felt like yourself. I felt not only was the camera work itself really better than good, yeah, but as well, the lighting was terrific in many different yeah. situations. And- I'll tell you one last thing about me. Uh, do you remember near the beginning of the movie uh, when the the girl, the hooker, gets inadvertently killed yeah. in the alleyway? Yeah. Do you remember it begins to rain like crazy? Totally, yeah. Well, and that's she gets me shot with a hose. <laughs> really? 
Yes. Because <laughs> it really looks like, like, a, like a downpour of real rain. <laughs> I was coached as to how to begin the rain, and I stood there, Alan, keep your thumb over the thing like that, and then spritz it like this, do that, 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 and okay. That's really now, good rain work. That was me. <laughs> yeah, because I would, I would not have guessed, you know, or I would have assumed it was one of those huge rigs, like, you know. No, that was uh, basically a $5 rain rig. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Like, like you said, it, it, it's better. The, the cinematography and the lighting is better than great. And one of the sad things about, you know, it only being on VHS and this DVD is, you know, a lot of times when movies are lit really well, but also take place in shadows and are dark, you know, those VHS transfers can be really murky and I think this is one of those movies where that people might have people might have watched it on VHS and been like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's just this movie, like old, crusty movie. But like, the, the, yeah, it looks it looks really good. If it and, was restored and released on a restored and be released on Blu-ray yeah. or streamed, you know, like, for example, when I saw it initially on a projector, it was terrific. The status <laughs> of the I would love to know, but I can't imagine what the status of the of the negative is i really don't know you hear about you hear stories about uh, big movies from the 30s and 40s where you know the, the they're in vaults in in hollywood and and sometimes they're restored fantastically and sometimes they say that it's lost forever yeah, yeah there's you hear about movies that we really want like for example there's um you know, i'm digressing horribly but there's a a movie about Queen Elizabeth I starring the legendary Sarah Bernhardt. And she was apparently one of the greatest actresses that ever lived, never mind of the late 19th century. But you can't watch it because the, they, let, they let the print and the negative dissolve yeah. from old age. They let it, they didn't give enough of a hoot to, to protect yeah. it properly, and, it, and it's gone. It's so and, unfortunate, and it just... It happens to so many movies. There's just there's and so many movies. It happens yeah. to a lot of movies. It is yeah. it is it is very shameful. And I cannot speak to this one. And I really thought, uh, thanks to the efforts of of you and and Sidel, I really thought that those those emeritus movies were gone forever. And Sid sat me down a year ago. Uh, with your assistance, and we watched on my large, my 65-inch Samsung <laughs> upstairs, we yeah. watched movies that I directed 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Five years ago. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, like, those Emeritus movies, like, there is a sizable cult of people that, like, are fascinated by them, are collecting them on VHS. They, you know, want to be able to know that they're all, you know, somewhere that can be seen. Like they want their, they want them all to be found, you know, and, and able to be watched. And like, I just, I just think that's such a cool thing to, to be able to speak to somebody that made one. And, and our conversation on the other podcast was just so enlightening about what it would have been like to make just a low budget shot on video for television you know movie and so yeah and to talk today about don't turn out the light skull night of terror i thank you like so much for your time <laughs> it's fantastic it's great to get this stuff off my chest after yeah. all these years but um, <laughs> but they were a, a terrific bunch of people most of them are still around 
and uh, thank goodness, and I see them once in a while. But uh, but it it really was a, a a wonderful time, and not very many rules to to obey. We got to <laughs> we got to goof around. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm excited for you to watch it again. I want yeah, to know what you I think after you do. Watch it with Sid and Sid's mom, and we're yeah. gonna have some popcorn, and it's gonna be fantastic. <laughs> if I can talk Sid's mom into doing it. Yeah, it's a separate topic. And we'll petition all the restoration companies to yes. to find that negative. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. that would be fantastic. <laughs>